0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 371 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, the first part of a two-part interview, Paul Dowswell speaks with Catherine O'Flynn about childhood classics such as Molesworth and Noggin the Nog, starting out in publishing as an image researcher writing to order as a staff member and then freelancer, and knowing what you're good at. Paul Dowswell,
1: a former senior editor with Usborne Publishing, has written over 80 books, including 14 historical fiction novels for young adults and older readers, and many non-fiction books for children. He's especially interested in the lives of people living in wartime or under dictatorships. His book, Auslander, about a teenage boy growing up in Nazi Germany won the Italian Hamelin Associazione Culturali Book Prize and the British Trinity Schools Book Award and won or was shortlisted for another 17 UK and international book awards. Two other novels, Section 20, about life under the East German Stasi and 1111, which follows the lives of three teenage combatants on the final day of the First World War, both won the Historical Association Young Quills Book Award. When not writing... Paul visits schools and festivals throughout the UK and abroad to talk about his books and lead writing classes. He's also taught creative writing at the Midlands Arts Centre in Birmingham and is a visiting professor at the Manchester Metropolitan University. Paul spent his early adult life in London working at the National Sound Archive, the Science Museum, BBC Books and Time Life publications. He's reviewed for Carousel and Armadillo and has contributed articles to The Guardian, The Times Educational Supplement and the English Association, among others, and has appeared on BBC TV and radio to talk about his writing. Outside of work, Paul enjoys travelling and playing with his band in the clubs and pubs of the West Midlands. I met up for a chat with Paul at his home in Wolverhampton. Hello, Paul. Uh, Hello, (laughs) Catherine. So I thought um, we'd start off talking a bit about your early exposure to books and writing. So I'm always interested in the different paths writers have taken towards writing. And I suppose especially with writers for children, I'm always curious about their early contact with books and how it may or may not have shaped them. So my first question is, did, did you grow up in a, in a literary household? Were there, were there lots of books around you when you were growing up?
2: Yeah, I think there were. My mum, English and French teacher. Right. And she was a great reader. My dad wasn't a novel kind of chap, but he, he had hundreds and hundreds of books about Japanese submarines and aircraft carriers and things like that. He's, he's very interested in military history and also technical things he's, he's a scientist in the family and that there was a lot of that and uh, we we absolutely were read to a lot when we were kids and likewise I think when I mean I've just got well, I've got the one daughter now she's so she's 23 now but when she was tiny we always read to her I think it's incredibly important to to read to children. And, I mean, my dad loved trains, so we had a lot of Thomas the Tank Engine. And Dr. Seuss, who who I still adore, I think he's a genius. Noggin' the Nog, which I mentioned. You like Oliver Postgate, don't you?
1: I love Oliver Postgate. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think absolutely uh, Bagpuss and the Clangers and Noggin' the Nog, they've all got that. And I for the engine. They well, have that real melancholy but beautiful mm-hmm. atmosphere and the writing is beautiful in the way. So I, I absolutely love them um, and loved them as a child. There
2: is a melancholy about it,
1: isn't there? Yeah.
2: I, I remember the first uh, episode of Nog in the Nog where, where he meets Graculus. If I ever had a tattoo, that's the tattoo I'd have, I think, Graculus. And Graculus is wondering where he came from. Because he doesn't know, because he was found as an egg, and that, that's a really quite a profound thing to have in a children's story. We had all the books; I've still got all the books on the bookshelf, and then the TV thing as well, of course, which we'd watch.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. So, and so, for you, you you grew up in this house that had loads of books, and what were your what were your particular favourites then when you were little? Was it did you love the Thomas books as well? Or?
2: I not as much as my dad. I don't <laughs> think my dad's an absolute steam train fanatic and. The older I get, the more I can understand why people find steam trains so fascinating. Right. One of my great friends said to me once, he loves steam trains because it's the last bit of technology he can actually understand. And after steam power, it's just magic, you know. And, you know, you can see a kettle lid going up and down when the kettle boils. Yeah. And you can understand how you could use that energy to turn a wheel and things, but... Uh, anything after that I don't know
1: that's a really good insight into why why people are fascinated by steam engines I've never really understood it but that is it's true it is the last piece of technology I think I yeah, could yeah, even remotely yeah. fathom and,
2: and you can imagine them having their own character and they are such majestic things Do you, have you been to the Millennium Point in Yes, Barium? and they have this absolutely huge steam train and it's just it's a magnificent piece of technology yeah um, so I can understand that but I'm trying to think of the things that I think when I first started to read I loved Stig of the Dump. Oh, I thought that was brilliant. And then the other things I absolutely adored when I was a kind of nine, ten year old was I love the Molesworth books.
1: Oh yes. Do you know those? I do. My my sister absolutely loved them as well. My old sister she's yeah. she's a big fan of them and so yeah, they used to be around the house and she still quotes bits of them.
2: That, uh, yeah, me too. I'm afraid, but one of the things I loved about them, and this is something that I, I really kind of aspire to as a writer, is that Geoffrey Willans, brilliantly assisted by Ronald Searle, mm. you know, because the pictures and the words go together so so brilliantly. He managed to produce something that, even though it was set in a British prep school in in the fifties he produced something that had this universal appeal. Because if you only had a vague notion of what Molesworth was about, you think, oh, that's not for me. It's about snooty boys in a boarding school, which it is. But I remember when I went to university, I had a very good friend who went to a a comp in Crawley, and she loved those books. And my friend from Boston in America, who was over a, a year as a foreign student, She loved those books. And then my brother's boy in the 1990s, he was like this anarchist punk rocker. He loved those books. So that's such a fantastic achievement to to produce something that in the 50s, and of course they were written, you know, they were written for adults. They originally appeared in Punch. And then 50, 60, 70 years later, to still be appealing to people, right across the sort of cultural spectrum. I mean, that's, I, think, I think he was a genius.
1: So I read a quote from you, uh, which if you don't mind, I'll read back to you sometimes. That could be a bit painful, but I don't think this is anything painful in this. Uh, and you wrote, "'The truth is it had never occurred to me to be a writer. "'I always thought that was something clever people did. "'Throughout school and university, "'I had been nothing more than mediocre, "'and I never considered myself clever.' But I always wrote for fun. I kept a diary for years and only stopped when I started to write for a living. And I I thought that was really illuminating, apart from being so brutal about yourself. (laughs) It's very illuminating in this clear distinction it makes between a love of or even a need for writing on the one hand. And then on the other hand, the idea, the notion of being a writer. And I wonder, you know, this isn't so much a question as just something to mull over. I wonder what it is that makes some people... Sure, from such an early age that they're destined to write, and others like you and, as it happens me, just not really consider it as an option. It wasn't anything that ever crossed my mind and or, or yours, it sounds like.
2: Do you know, I think it's down to role models and and your family. It's the same thing with, say, being a musician or an actor or an actress or whatever. If you've got somebody in the family who does it, it doesn't seem like a mad pipe dream. But I, I, I really, I kind of grew up thinking that writers were very clever people who'd been to oxbridge and all that kind of thing and and that's that's where that was the writing class you know and and i wasn't one of those people
1: yeah so from someone who never initially considered himself a writer i wonder if you if you wouldn't mind talking a bit about about your route into publishing because i think it's quite interesting and then into writing itself and the path your career subsequently followed you know how did it all begin and where did it go then
2: I have, throughout my life, (laughs) I have been extraordinarily lucky. And when I left university, what I really, really wanted to do was something that was interesting. You know, one of my best mates at university went into the city because he wanted to make lots and lots of money, and he subsequently did, and bullied for him, you know. But I wanted to do something that was going to really engage me and interest me. And to begin with, I thought it would be doing something that involved music words and visuals and i i banged on that door for years and didn't get in but what i did do was i got work in a kind of allied area which was actually very useful to my future career i started getting works in picture research which in those days involved going around dusty old archives and museums and stuff. i love museums and finding images there which is great fun a lot of travel i really loved it and i i ended up i did a bit of work for kodak and i ended up working for the science museum when they were setting up the national museum of photography in bradford and from there on i got Work in publishing. I did that job, and 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 that was a really good sort of calling card. And I just had to be in the right place at the right time for that. And I ended up working for an awful packaging company, up in Finchley, the kind of company that you know, but did did books with red sports cars on the front or kittens. You know the kind of things you buy in W. A. Smiths. And and then I got a job BBC Books. So, so that was an interesting thing. And, and that was fascinating. I got to work with people like David Dimbleby and Barry Norman and, and you know, re- really, really good stuff. And that got me a job in my late 20s. Best job I've ever had, working for Time Life. You know, the big American mm-hmm. thing. And we, they were doing History of the World. Yeah. It was a brilliant job. And what I had to do was I had to provide pictures and information about the pictures for somebody to write really voluminous captions about what was in the picture, which is kind of thing I'm naturally interested in anyway. And I did this and the editor there, who's become a lifelong friend, he said to me, we really like the way you put the information together for the writer, you ought to be writing yourself. And that was my big break. And he started me off writing and shortly after that all the bean counters over in America decided they were going to shut down the office. And there was a fantastic team of people, best people I've ever worked with, brilliant people, and they shut the whole office down. And I was looking for a job and I've met Jenny, who you just met, and we were seeing each other at weekends and we were just wondering what to do with our Life and whether she was going to come down to London or I was going to come away. And I found this extraordinary thing happened. On They told us one Friday in late November that they were going to shut the office down. And on the Monday, in Creative and Media, in The Guardian, I don't know if they still have that, there was a job for a writer-editor in Wolverhampton. <laughs> Isn't that weird? So I thought, that job's got my name on it. And and it did. So I got this job working for Osborne for who had a, a little office up in Wolverhampton and I moved up here, bought this house and I worked there for about eight years I think and it was a great job because I did everything there. I, I had to edit the books and I had i, mean, I had an editor above me as well I wrote them, I sourced all the images so all the skills that I'd acquired in my previous work all came together and they were brilliant as well because they allowed me to do things that helped me develop my writing skills. I mean, I started off writing, uh, the first book called The Usborn Animal Quiz Book. <laughs> and, and that was all about, you know, like how animals form like little animal families. You know, it's for like eight, nine-year-olds and, and how animals hunt or protect themselves or different environments, all that kind of thing. And I did a few of those and they were fun. But then they let me write what they call narrative non-fiction which you know, where you have to write real events in a fictitious style. And I absolutely love doing that. And so I did that for a while, and, and the, the, they let me do loads of those, and they were such fun to write. And I was always able to do something that helped me do something different. I mean, I wrote a whole load of spoof history books in the style of tabloid newspapers. Which was, was great fun, great fun. And then after about eight years, I th- the trouble is, when you work on staff, it's a bit like being a teacher. You know, the higher up the hierarchy you go, the more you have to be an administrator rather than a... Yeah. And what was happening with me was that I really wanted to write. I mean, I, I, I do think one of the great talents in life, the great skills in life is knowing what you're good at. And I knew I wasn't cut out to be... An editor, and I admire people who are editors. I find editors hugely helpful in my life. I love being edited, but I knew what I wanted to be was a writer, and I went freelance just before my fortieth birthday because I thought that's what I've got to do rather than because if I would stayed at Osborne, I think I would have been expected to you know do more and more of the the, the editorial side because I'd worked in all these different. I'd worked in about five or six different publishing companies before I went freelance, so I had all these contacts. So I kind of hit the ground running when, when I went freelance, doing non-fiction books.
1: Yeah, well, I just want to say, because often when people say, you know, what were the most important books to you as a child? And, um, you know, people will say, oh, things like Swallows and Amazons or Oliver Twist. And But for me, uh, it's, it's Usborne books, of uh, detective guides. When I was eight nine and thought I was a private detective, their little series of um, clues and suspects and fakes and forgeries. And uh, I absolutely, they, they, they were the most important books to me in my life. I still have them now. And so um, it's really funny being someone who worked for Osborne for many years, because for me, they are like what kick-started my entire, you know, other life as a secret detective, which made me want to ultimately sort of write about it and so oh, yeah.
2: like. do your children's books do that, don't they? Are they yes. They got, yeah. Do, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that
1: yeah. funny? It yeah. is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, and my first novel for adults was about a child detective that goes missing. So it's kind of, it's the kind of thing I can't quite shake, and it's all the fault of Osborne books, really. And so you, yeah, just before your 40th birthday, you thought... Um, um, you're going to go freelance is that you started working then in collaboration with publishers developing ideas for books um, let me if I can um, another quote from you. you this is you talking about sort of um, how you write and develop books at that at that point I think you say my publisher has to make money from the books I write and if they think my pet idea will have few takers they reject it but once an idea gets a green light then I write 5,000 word synopsis Plotting out my story, fleshing out my characters. When this gets approved, I write the book. This way, I know exactly what I'm doing, give or take the odd new twist that comes out in the process of writing. And the publisher gets the book they're expecting me to write. So, is that how you started working then? That kind of quite nice collaborative process with a publisher, or how did that evolve?
2: When I first went freelance, I did nonfiction for four, five years. Right, and the way nonfiction, well, the way it works. 20 years ago was that the publisher has an idea which I think they take to book fairs and if it looks like there's enough interest in them then they will like so for example one of the first things that I started to do I did a series on inventions for Heinemann I think you know like household inventions travel communications you know they did a whole series of four books that somebody had taken as an idea to I think a book fair and it had got the green light and then I get commissioned to to write four books 64 pages so you plan them out and and, and so that everybody knows exactly what you're doing and that's how non-fiction generally works so with Usborn they wanted to build on this stuff I'd done on staff on on true stories true stories of heroism and survival and escape and so so I actually produced books for them that were far more just words rather than words and pictures working together and little paperback books rather than great big, you know, colorful yeah. bed They're those big Osborne books. The way would work for that was, say, I had to write escape stories. I'd have to write 12 escape stories that would appeal to 9, 10, 11, 12. And so I'd know roughly how many words and, and how many stories they needed. And then I would... Research those stories and suggest them to the editor, and the editor would say, Yeah, that sounds good. And then I'll just go on and write it. But with novels, you're talking about novels.
0: Mm.
2: What happened there, and again, this is a fantastic stroke of luck. And again, it's I've been so gauntless about things like this. But what happened was I'd done several of those Osborne true story books, and two of them on the trot were shortlisted for the Blue Peter Book Award, which is very exciting. I did one on heroism and then one on polar explorers. And a very kind fellow author at the Blue Peter Book Award suggested that I get in touch with her agent, or not her agent, a friend of hers who was just opening an agency. And I got in touch with them. And he said to me, because I was writing in this narrative non-fiction style, and he said, "You ought to have a go at fiction." And I kind of thought, I kind of thought it would be difficult to transition from non-fiction to fiction, and I wasn't sure I was able to do it. But because I'd done this narrative non-fiction, I, and also because it was historical fiction, so I had to write stories within a framework of actual historical events, yeah. I thought, "Yeah, I could probably do that," and I did. And that's how I got my first book. Contractors as a fiction writer.
1: That's really interesting, and that explains. I think it's, I think it's really good here as well that it wasn't that big a, a leap. You know, I think sometimes people think this is a whole different world from you know fiction and non-fiction but for you I mean and that explains it quite well that because there was there was some kind of context not context um constraints there you know historical constraints and so that felt slightly less scary than like
2: yeah. inventing
1: something completely yes. yeah
2: and I also feel probably going off on a bit of a tangent here but I think that it's a very Darwinian world being a, a writer and I think what you've got to do You've got to concentrate on what you're good at. So historical fiction was what I settled on. And I'm not sure I could write contemporary fiction. I certainly couldn't write science fiction or, you know, all the other genres. But but I know that I'm as good as anyone else, I think, at writing historical fiction. (laughs) Whereas I'm not as good as everyone else at writing contemporary fiction or science fiction or... I'm not saying better than other people, no. but you've got to believe you, you're as good as everybody else who's writing in the same field. Otherwise, why should people read your books rather than...
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you, you don't know, sound, sound cocky at all, if anything. You know, saying I'm as good as anybody else, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you're better than, you know, vast majority of people. So it doesn't sound, um, it doesn't sound like you're being yourself. Uh, well, your well thank you,
2: Cathy. That's, that's <laughs> generous of you. But you've got to think that. Otherwise, why bother?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you've got to have that. I I
2: don't even mean that in a competitive thing, like, you know, a footballer might think he was the best man on the pitch. I just mean it in a completely practical, making a living kind of a way.
1: Yeah, and I think if there's one thing, if there's one thing writers are good at, it's being very clear on their own failings and limitations often too much so we, i think i think we can be too brutal with ourselves but i think you're right you have a very clear idea of like no that isn't my strength i'm not great at that and i mm-hmm. think being aware of the things you are better at is is something you have that a skill you have to develop isn't it
2: but also i think you have to be aware and this is something that particularly when i taught creator i love doing when i worked at the mac one of the things i told the students was you've got to do something that the publisher thinks they can make money out of. And that's not being a hack. No. You know, the publisher is not there as a conduit for you to showcase your talent to the world. The publisher is there to make money out of your ideas. And you've got to understand that. I was shortlisted for a book award quite recently... And one of the fellow shortlistees, a very, very nice woman who'd recently won the Carnegie. And she said to the kids, you know, it's a question and answer. She said to them, be awkward. You do what you want to do. And I really felt like saying, you have to have won the Carnegie to say that. (laughs)
0: That was Paul Dowswell in conversation with Catherine O'Flynn. You can find out more about Paul on his website at pauldowswell.com. And that concludes episode 371, which was recorded by Catherine O'Flynn and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 372, in the concluding part of this interview, Paul speaks with Catherine about publishers, dramatic stories, and a key message for young readers. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.